This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. My name is Jane and welcome to another jam-packed week, largely curated by our host Vivian Langford. Um, Tonight we've got a bit of a crossover. We've got a Canadian in Australia and then we have an Australian in Canada. First up, we're meeting Canadian author Ian Angus. He was recently at the Socialism for the 20th Century Conference in Sydney, launching his book, wait for it, Facing the Anthropocene, Fossil Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System. I like that, fossil capitalism. There's a few layers to that. Then after that, we are broadcasting an interview from uh, Canada's Radio Eco Shock, and uh, Vivian quite often cherry picks some excellent shows from Alex Smith's show Radio Eco Shock and brings them to us. And tonight, uh, the Australian author David Spratt was with Alex Smith. David Spratt's website is called Climate Code Red. But uh, first up tonight, we have Ian Angus in Sydney. The question tonight is how to slow capitalism's ecocidal drive and to reverse it. Ian Angus is a Canadian eco-socialist. His slogan is leave the oil in the soil, the coal in the hole and the tar sands in the land. He gave me a far-reaching interview at the Socialism for the 21st Century Conference in Sydney. It was at Sydney University where his book, Facing the Anthropocene, was launched. You can get this book now in the bookshops. Listeners, his name is Ian Angus. I was delighted to learn that he had, for many years, presented a radio show in Canada, so he knew the ropes and he gave me such a good interview. You'll love his historical knowledge and his statesman-like composure. He really felt like an authority. You know, when I spoke to him, he could see the future, that we mustn't panic, we must work together, and we will be able to avoid this massive disruption to our civilization and ecosystem. After that, we'll hear from Professor Christopher Wright, whose book, Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations, also helps us think about how to slow capitalism's ecocidal drive which has made our continued existence uncertain. You might not have heard this term, ecocide, but really lawyers are starting to think of it as a crime. You know, we have crimes against humanity, or we can have crimes against the ecosystem too, ecocide. The third speaker is David Spratt, 
He is talking to Alex Smith about how even a rise of one degree in the oceans has begun to kill our Great Barrier Reef. This is top news for us Australians and our government's efforts to just throw money at it is, is, is inadequate unless they stop the contrib contribution to climate change that we have in our exported coal and gas. Our guest now is Ian Angus. He's just written a marvellous new book called Facing the Anthropocene, Fossil Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System. Welcome very much, Ian. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to meet you again. I did speak to you once before on your book about population a few years ago. So Ian's really an eco-socialist. He's very interested in the climate change crisis and how socialism might bring some new ideas into to the mix to get us out of it. Um, the title of your book is Facing the Anthropocene, and many people think this suggests that humans are now controlling the Earth system, but it feels out of control to me. Aren't we facing chaos? Oh, we certainly are. I, I think that the idea that the, the Anthropocene uh, might represent humans uh, you know, safely running the Earth or whatever is a thorough misunderstanding of what scientists are telling us. What the scientists who've developed the concept of the Anthropocene, that is the idea that we are now in a new epoch of, human, of, of Earth history mm -hmm. in which the conditions of the past 12,000 years in which civilization was born are now gone, and we are now going to face a very different world. What those scientists are telling us is not that humans are in control, but rather that human activity has grown so great uh, and so large that it is disrupting the earth. It is disrupting what they call the earth system, mm -hmm. all the, uh, cy the cycles which are short and long that, that together have made the earth uh, a livable place for our species and many others. Uh, human activity is uh, interfering with, and the result of that is the planet is shifting the way it functions. Mm -hmm. It's adjusting to us and uh, not adjusting in particularly pleasant ways for us. No. Well, I recently did a program about Antarctica, and I interviewed some scientists who were working there, and they said that the ice cores show that we haven't had carbon dioxide concentrations as high as the present 400 parts per million for thousands of years. And I'd like to ask you, as an eco-socialist, how has capitalism caused this great acceleration of CO2 that we see in the ice core? Well, capitalism as a system is about six or 700 years old. The arrival of a, of a system in which... Um, some people profit from other people's labor and in which profit as such is the driver of society, which was a shift from previous societies, uh, can be dated back to about 1400 or 1500 in Europe. But there were several hundred years in which it was primarily a kind of uh, mercantile and agricultural capitalism. Uh, the profit was based on farming, or the profit was based on trade, or the profit was based on slavery, which it was in many cases. Towards the end of the, uh, of the um, 1700s and the beginning of the 1800s, we start to see a, 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 an acceleration of the way capitalism operates. And that was based on uh, a number of technological discoveries, most importantly the steam engine and, and the rapid increase in the use of coal, but also the invention of the factory, the invention of the concentration of workers in one place where... Uh, so that the boss could control what they did, uh, manage their lives, and the increasingly the machinery drove the worker rather than the worker driving the machinery. That process expanded through the 1800s when uh, 
The steam engine went from being something that turned a, uh, a loom into uh, something that drove railways, drove, drove railways, ways, made steamships possible. Uh, the railway boom of the uh, 1800s is one of the great periods of expansion of capitalism in which enormous amounts of investment went into uh, a technology that involved burning fossil fuels. So if you look at the long-term graphs, all, the, all that burning of fossil fuels, mm. and then at the end of the, of the 19th century, the arrival of, of oil as a, in even more uh, energy, you know, mm. solid-packed source of energy, mm. um, up until the steam engine, capitalism was dependent, as human beings had been forever, on muscle power, wind power, and water power. That's what it had. The coming of fossil fuels meant that we were getting energy that had been buried in the earth for 300 million years, and that meant carbon that had been buried in the earth for 300 million years, and in a very short order, we're putting all of that carbon as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. You say, you know, hundreds of millions of years worth of carbon in a matter of uh, two centuries is suddenly being pushed into the atmosphere. What I found when I researched the book, it, and uh, certainly scientists have pointed to this exactly the same thing, is that you see a quite gradual increase in the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and of many other forms of pollution, mm. uh, beginning in the late 1700s and continuing up to the end of World War II. Then at the end of the war period, you very quickly see the, all the graphs start to go mm. straight up. Mm. The shift to fossil fuels for everything worldwide, because really even up until World War II, much of the world was still not on a fossil fuel economy. Mm -hmm. um, the emergence of plastics as the second large, uh, third largest capitalist industry, yeah. entirely made from oil. The emergence of uh, air travel as a huge phenomenon, which mm -hmm. had not been true before. And, uh, and in particular, the emergence of the uh, permanent war economy, <laughs> in which... Uh, Basically, the major countries, uh, which had previously tended to dissolve their armies or really cut them back between wars, now we had permanent armed forces, and uh, the United States armed forces is the largest single polluter in the world, mm. and militaries more generally are the largest in the world. So what we see in the second half of the 20th century is all of the processes, all of the destructive processes that were part of capitalism mm. for 150 years suddenly took off, mm. and scientists call that the Great Acceleration. Um, what they'll say is that the period since 1950, in the period since 1950, human beings have made more changes to the world, way the world operates than at any time in the past. No other species, not us, <laughs> has ever in such a short period changed the way the world works so quickly. Yeah. Well, the capitalist system certainly doesn't seem very efficient at preserving the world <laughs> that it's made so much profit out of so recently, and global subsidies to Fossil fuels, coal, oil and gas are still in the trillions globally. And I'd like to know why isn't capital able to adapt to the new reality that the scientists are all screaming about now? And a lot of people are hoping that capitalism will. People are hoping for some tweaking, but I'm sure you'll have a different answer. Well, i got to say, if there was some magic way that uh, we could... Uh, solve all this without a big lot of social disruption, I'd be all in favor of it. Mm. I think the transition to uh, a different kind of society is going to be difficult. Um, but the fact is we live in a society in which profit is the central functioning, uh, the central driving force mm. at all times. This is independent of what the motives of a capitalist are or the, or the desires of it are. If you... Uh, 
if you get the job as president of a big company and you decide, well, we're just going to give up on profit because we want to do wealth by the world mm. at large, you're not going to last very long as president. Mm. Um, and in fact, you're very like, unlikely to get the job if you're that kind of person because the system, regardless of what the people within it want, the system has to grow. If, this, if capitalism does not constantly increase itself, uh, it, will, it starts to collapse. Um, when I may, if I make an investment, if I build a, you know, put some money into an oil company, um, I expect to get more back that I put in. That's the way it works. If I put it in expecting to get less back, eventually I'd have no mm. money left. Mm. So the, uh, you know, that doesn't mean I always will make a profit, mm. but that's always the goal. And uh, so you make a certain amount of profit, that goes back into it, and it becomes a uh, constantly expanding process. That's the way this system works. Mm. And it will do that regardless of the damage it causes. That's why you know, the cigarette industry was so successful. That's why it took so long to stop um, destroying the ozone layer, because it was profitable to do it. Um, and that's why um, oil companies have lied and cheated and done everything possible to deny that their fundamental product is destructive to the world. Mm. Because without that ability to use that product, they've got no profits. Okay, well, look, Naomi Klein's book was very popular, and her title, This Changes Everything, went a lot further than just decarbonizing the economy. And you said we have to remove, in your book, you mentioned a list of things, you know, for example, remove the profit motive. You've just talked about that, the arms trade, the advertising industry, and factory farming. I think that's a fight on many more fronts than the present climate movement is prepared for. What do you have to say to that? Well, I've really got two answers. My, my first one is that uh, I am a socialist, I am an eco-socialist, and I do believe the fight is on many fronts. The fact is that if we could figure out a way to stop using fossil fuels today, we would still have huge damage being caused by many other aspects of capitalism, by the use of artificial fertilizers, by the... Uh, the whole problem of, of species extinction because forests are being cut down. You could go across the line. The, uh, there's a um, group of scientists who have done, uh, done a thing of creating what they call the planetary boundaries, which is a list of eight um, or nine uh, fundamental ways the planet works that they're saying if we don't keep all of those within appropriate limits, mm -hmm. that the way the Earth works will become seriously damaged. And if several of them fail, it could be catastrophic. Um, and they also say you can't just focus on one of them because they're so tightly interlinked. At all, at all of them are very tightly interlinked. So that's, number, that's my answer number one, is that this is a complex societal problem. It cuts across all kinds of different ways we operate. The other side of the answer is that not every, certainly not everybody agrees with me on that. And as a socialist, I'm prepared to work with people who simply want to work on coal seam gas or who just want to work on uh, uh, ending factory farming or whatever it is. Uh, it's, it, it's obviously very difficult to take on the entire society at once. Yeah. But I think, why, I think the way a movement to actually change the world will be built is to a considerable degree by people fighting the struggles they see right in front of them yeah. in individual factories, in individual communities. And uh, 
So I think that there's no contradiction between those two views from an eco-socialist point of view. Okay. Well, let's talk about the working class now. We've recently seen thousands of workers evacuated in Alberta, Canada, and they were working in the tar sands industry. And, of course, your government promised to get them back to work as soon as possible. Our government would certainly do that. Here in Australia, the trade unions can see that coal is in a slump, but they're clinging to their jobs and it's hard to find anyone planning the transition when the coal and gas have to be left in the ground. I feel the social licence will at least be taken away from those two things and, and there will be a transition, but it'll be messy unless we plan it. How do you see this transition happening I think it's very, very important that environmentalists um, recognize the role of working people in all of this and the fact that many of the changes that we, we want to see and need to see are going to be or could potentially be harmful to many working people. I think it's utterly essential, for example, that we don't, start, we don't put ourselves in a position of condemning workers who go to dig coal or go to get the tar sands because they need to earn a living. It's, that's, we have to recognize that that's in because in we do live in a society where if mm. you don't have a job, you're going to starve. Mm. Uh, people will get the jobs they need to get. What we need to do, and we are in Canada seeing some of the unions thinking about this, not all of them, but some of them. That is that simultaneously with starting with phasing out uh, the fo- fossil fuel industry, there be a concentrated uh, public program of retraining of redirecting the labor of the workers in that. For example, in Canada, if you've ever seen aerial photography of the tar sands, you've got uh, any hundreds of square miles of what was once beautiful land Mm -hmm. utterly destroyed. Well, that... we. The people who have worked there are the people who would be in the best position to work on restoring that, on closing those pits up, on restoring soil to the extent we obviously we can't restore it entirely, mm. but at least cleaning it up. Things like, um, again, in my country where we have cold winters, the uh, issue of say, of reducing f- uh, fossil fuel use is going to be closely related to what can we do to make sure everybody's home is energy efficient, that they don't lose heat, and mm. so on. Those are things that we that we will need people to do. I think that they what what people in the la- labor movement refer to as the just transition has to be a really important focus of uh, the environmental movement. I run into environmentalists all too often who who will simply blame the workers yeah. for having those jobs and that is a guaranteed way to alienate people who should be on our side. Yes, I agree. It happens here too. Look, in your chapter, um, I'm talking to Ian Angus and his book is called Facing the Anthropocene, Fossil Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System. Ian, you had a chapter there called We Are Not All In This Together and you started with the idea of the Titanic and the first class people were pretty sure of the uh, ride in the the life save the boat. Um, But the people in the economy class were there weren't going to be any lifeboats for them, and you say that's a a model of the present situation. You expose a fortress mentality uh, where elite people and the military, for example, just think they can sequester themselves from this climate problem. What do you think they are really planning while they talk, our governments, your government, they talk about innovation, international cooperation, green banks, you know, helping the Pacific Islanders who are sinking under the rising seas, and they're also signing up to the Paris Climate Agreement. What do you think they're really planning or thinking? 
I'm not sure many of them are really planning or thinking anything apart from protecting their own privileges and their own uh, survival. The rich have always uh, sort of pulled themselves to get into, into separate neighborhoods and separate mansions, and they continue to do that. But what we see them doing now is doing this on a global scale. Um, on, a, on a number of levels. If you get the really super rich, there are entire cities devoted to simply serving the super rich, uh, in which there is uh, uh, the poor simply are invisible except as servants. And, uh, of course, you've got all of the, the super yachts and all the rest of it sort of as the, as the very wealthy um, isolate themselves or find ways, that, find places where they can go in the event of a crisis because they know that their system repeatedly produces rebellions. Now, they may attribute it to, to people being stupid or people being a conspiracy or whatever, but they do know it's going to happen or it's got likely to happen, so they set themselves up in places where they can be more secure over time. Um, Capitalism is a, is, a, is a system with a very short-term orientation. Mm-hmm. They don't think in terms of a century from now or how their great-grandchildren will work. They think about a, three months from now when the next profit statement comes out. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are what they try to protect. Now, they also do it on a different kind of level. Um, and we see it here in Australia where you get this kind of fortress Australia mentality uh, where desperately poor people trying to get to Australia get moved into concentration camps in Nauru and, and uh, Papua New Guinea um, or in, uh, uh, in Europe where the uh, European Union has this gigantic budget entirely devoted to deporting people back to the Middle East at a time when the Middle East, of course, is a place to die. Mm. Um, that kind of fortress mentality is all part of uh, protecting privilege in, in a uh, social order that is built on privilege and inequality. Well, look, we don't have much time to prevent the worst of climate change. Really, all the scientists give these windows of opportunity, but they pass, and we're still going. Uh, in Australia, our emissions are still rising, for example. And when we say socialism, many people think back to the environmental disasters of the Soviet Union, and you broach this in your book, or China, for example. And I wonder, do you think... Uh, candidates or uh, people in parliament like Bernie Sanders or Jeremy Corbyn are showing the way forward. Are they giving socialism a new sort of lease of life? I think people like uh, Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn are more indicators than creators of, of, of a new kind of movement. I mean, the simple fact that, I mean, Bernie Sanders has been in American politics for his entire life, but this year, I think, he and the people around him recognized quite brilliantly that there was an interest and a demand for a new kind of politics in the United States. And uh, they proved to be correct that uh, a, a person who is self-described as a socialist and who's being condemned as a socialist mm-hmm. by the right-wing press is getting mass support. And uh, a similar kind of phenomenon with Corbyn, um, uh, the huge support to the Leap Manifesto in Canada. All of those things indicate to me that we are seeing a radical shift in attitudes, especially among young people, uh, who no, they no longer say, ah, oh, the Soviet Union proves, proves socialism is impossible. They have come to the conclusions that many of us came to even in the 20th century, that what we had in the Soviet Union wasn't socialism at all, and it was... Um, mostly did damage to the concept and also, even more importantly, did serious damage mm-hmm. to the earth. So the, uh, I think that uh, many people are getting past that um, 
you're still going to see the ideologues and the Murdoch newspapers columnists uh, saying, ah, oh, they're going to you know, create the gulag for mm-hmm. everybody. But I think uh, increasingly those kinds of arguments are just not being listened to. Right. Well, Beyond Zero Emissions, which uh, sponsors this program, and other groups have created blueprints endlessly, these blueprints for the whole change, for example, in decarbonising renewable energy and the transition for workers, all of that. But governments just seem to be in the way. And I'd like to know what needs to change within democracy. Well, the starting thing that needs to be needs to change on that is that you need, again, a social order that doesn't depend on profit. I mean, I've seen beyond zero emission studies. They are very impressive. They show what could be done if you were willing to destroy the oil industry, destroy the, the, the uh, uh, coal industry, and completely revamp the way the economy works. Um, but what you're doing then is you're attacking the most fundamental institutions of the system and to ask um, a political party that is entirely beholden to the coal and gas and fossil fuel wor- industries to uh, change that is, uh, is whistling in the wind. That was Ian Angus, author of Facing the Anthropocene. Um, Ian Angus is a Canadian writer and he also uh, has a website called climateandcapitalism.com. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. Get lost in science. into 3CR every week to hear Beth, Chris and Stuart discuss news and issues from the universe that is science. Get informed and learn a bit more about the world around you. Lost in Science can be heard every Thursday at 8.30 in the morning and is repeated the following Tuesday at 6am. Word to the nerd! You can also download a podcast. Go to the website at www.3cr.org.au and get lost in science. So first up, we've been listening to Ian Angus, a Canadian author uh, with a book just out called Facing the Anthropocene, Fossil Fossil Capitalism and the Crisis of the Earth System. Next up, we're going to one of Alex Smith's shows from Radio Ecoshock. He's talking to our, uh, as in our Australian, David Spratt, who was the author of Climate, his uh, Climate Code Red. I, I believe he released a book of that name, and his website is of the same name. That's Climate Code Red. So here's David Spratt in conversation with Alex Smith. You're listening to Radio 3CR. I'm Ian Angus, longtime uh, community radio broadcaster in Canada, and uh, editor of the website climateandcapitalism.com. As I struggle to cover world problems comes a call from Vivian Langford. She's the host of Beyond Zero on 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. You must cover the mass bleaching of coral in the Great Barrier Reef, she said. And Vivian sent me a link to a powerful story by David Spratt. He's the author of the book Climate Code Red and one of my favorite blogs, which is also called Climate Code Red. And David asks, After the record, mind-numbing, coral bleaching, what would it take to save the reef? Good question. David Spratt, welcome back to Radio Ecoshock. Hello, Alex. Lovely to be with you. 
Okay, now as you write in your blog, back in 2009, Charlie Veron, one of the world's greatest coral experts, told the Royal Society the Great Barrier Reef was on a death watch, as he put it, and that was then. But let's back up a little bit, David. We've all seen video of gorgeous coral, but it's hard for us to grasp the size of Australia's giant reef. How would you describe it? Well, I mean, this long before we had World Heritage listings, I mean, this was often listed as one of the seven great wonders of the natural world, together with Mount Everest, the, the Antarctic, Victoria Falls, and so on. So this is a magnificent thing that stretches almost 3,000 kilometres down the east coast of Australia. This is something that you can see from outer space, literally, in its size. There's no other coral structure likely in the world. It's the most precious ecosystem we have in Australia. Yes, and I know it's mind-boggling, the amount of living things that depend on it, but could you talk to us a little bit about the biological importance of this Great Barrier Reef? Well, look, barrier reefs have actually, uh, sorry, coral structures have been around for 500 million years. I mean, they're really old. Um, uh, Corals have produced more fossils than than anything else in this world. A quarter of all marine species live in and around coral systems. And uh, around the world, um, particularly in Asia, but in other places as well, there are tens of millions of people who depend on coral reefs and because they're very rich environments, particularly for people who use uh, marine protein as their primary form of protein, they're absolutely essential for for many people in the developing world for their day-to-day survival. So from so many perspectives, they, they are just so essential. And could you explain what gives the coral those brilliant colours we've seen and then why it can go white? The coral, I guess to many of us, has two meanings. One is those big limestone structures we see. So the coral animal, um, the coral polyp, is, is like a small jellyfish and it builds a base of limestone of calcium carbonate in which it situates itself and and builds structures. So you've got an inert limestone base and an animal that lives on the the, the top layer of it. That um, coral polyp lives in a symbiotic relationship with a very small algae called uh, zoosanthella. And that algae and the coral polyp, the coral animal, are codependent because the algae uh, produces the oxygen that the polyp needs and the polyp produces the carbon dioxide that the, the algae needs. So they have to go together. And it's the algae that actually give coral that bright, those many bright colours we see. If the temperature, the water temperature gets too too hot, the, the polyps get stressed and they expel the algae. And if they expel all the algae, and once they're expelled, they do not come back. So if you have what's called, and, and this is why we have the word bleaching, because if the coral polyp expel the algae, the coral loses its colour and goes that tr- almost translucent white colour. So hence the, the, the notion of bleaching. So you can have... Bleaching, which is not so severe, where some of the algae will be expelled or some of the, the corals in a reef system will expel their algae, but not all of them. In a severe bleaching, what we've seen this time, the corals literally die because they are starved of food and nutrients. And that's what we're seeing on, in an unprecedented way on the most pristine section of the barrier reef at the moment. And how much of that Great Barrier Reef has bleached white this year? Well, there are 
are about 3,000 reef, reef systems in the Great Barrier Reef, stretching over 3,000 kilometres. Scientists over the last month, six weeks, have done a survey, both an aerial survey and getting in the water, where they spent a lot of time, and they assessed 910 reefs, and of them they found 500 to be what they called severely bleached, which means that their, their prognosis is not good. In particular, the northernmost thousand kilometres of the reef, which stretches from northern Queensland through the Coral Sea up almost to New Guinea, is the most pristine, the most touched, the highest value uh, section of the reef. In that section, the northern section, they found that more than 50% mortality of corals already. Now, it must be understood that when they go back in two or three months, that mortality rate will be up. They think it will will be around 90% on some of the, the reefs. So we and really, sadly, are looking at perhaps most, certainly most, three quarters more even, of the best 1,000 kilometres of the Barrier Reef just having died uh, from climate change, from record hot waters in the Coral Sea uh, this Australian summer. Yes, when masses of coral first turned white in the 1980s, people thought it was a disease, how do we know, David Spratt, that it's really a signal of climate change? The fact is there hadn't been a, a bleaching event until the 1980s. So this is a new phenomenon and bleaching can be reproduced uh, in, in the laboratory. I mean, a lot of work has been done on the Barrier Reef. It's an essential part of, of Australia's identity, uh, of its natural ecosystems. It also supports 80,000 people in terms of the tourist industry. It's one of Australia's best-known icons. So a lot of work's been done. And you can, in a laboratory situation, take waters uh, with corals in them and warm them up and watch this process happening. You can also increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the water, which is uh, another consequence of climate change. As we put more into the air, about 40% of that carbon dioxide is drawn down into the water, mixes with uh, H2O to produce carbonic acid, which is a, a, a weak acid. And that acid itself will eat away at limestone structures, whether they be corals or the shells of, of um, hard animals like crabs and so on. And they produce this in the laboratory. So this is now a well-known and well-observed event. And have the seas around Australia been hotter than normal? Yes, we've just had uh, particularly the section which is m most badly bleached had the hottest waters on record, literally without exception, about one degree warmer than the average over the last 20 years. That is partly a consequence of the El Nino. As we know, in the El Nino, you get a very large uh, blob of warm water in the eastern Pacific. As the El Nino starts to moderate, um, as is happening at the moment, the normal trade winds resume and that warm water gets moved westward. So um, six months ago, some of the coral scientists were saying, you know, we've got a bad feeling we can see this really large warm mass of water, which you think, we think is probably heading towards Australia, and that's what's happened. So, as you said, coral's been around for about 500 million years. It has faced mass extinction events before, and somehow it recovered. David, why are marine scientists so worried about the bleaching this year? Well, what we have to understand is that if, if a coral is killed by a bleaching event, uh, that is, it loses all its algae, the, the limestone structure remains, but the polyps, the animals inside, um, die. And then the only way that that coral reef can be rebuilt is for new coral larvae 
to settle on the old structure and start the building process again. So downstream from the existing reef, uh, a new reef can be formed, and that's how coral spreads. Charlie Veron, who I quote in the article, I mean, literally the godfather of um, coral science, a man who is identified and named a third of the world's corals, uh, told me that it takes about 15 years after a bleaching event for the coral, as he said, to look good again, for, for um, a bleach reef to be recolonised with uh, new coral. If, in a global warming world, you have these warmer seas more and more often, you're going to get bleaching events at shorter and shorter intervals, so you just don't get that 10 to 15 years uh, for recovery. So you be, it's, it's, it's really a death spiral of bleaching events at shorter and shorter intervals. And some scientists at the University of Melbourne, led by Professor David Caroli, just did some work around some models and said, this event of warm waters we had this year, which was extraordinary, they said, in 20 years' time, by, by 2034, we believe that these sort of water temperatures around the reef will happen once every two years. And that's, that's a death sentence for, for coral reefs in terms of the incapacity to, uh, to rebuild before they get whacked again. It's like sort of you know, getting, getting hit and standing up and getting hit again. It's just, a, it's just a terrible sequence of events. And so what we have come to understand now that at global warming, global average warming is now about one degree around the world, at, at one degree, coral systems will not survive. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with my guest, David Spratt. He's the author of the book and blog, Climate Code Red, and the latest climate emergency is for coral in Australia's Great Barrier Reef. So I think we should also say that, of course, these bleaching events are not confined to Australia. They're happening right around the world in different places, depending on the particular sea temperatures. So my recent study has been at the Great Barrier Reef, but this is a story that, is, that can be told in, in many places, from the Middle East to the Caribbean and, and right through Asia. Right. It is a global story, and I, I wish we had time to cover it, and I'm hoping to get there eventually. So getting back to Australia's case, though, is part of the Great Barrier Reef already dead? Coral reefs have been under the hammer for a long time. So a study was done a few years ago, and they established that the, the, the extent, literally the footprint of the Great Barrier Reef, is about half of what it was 30 or 35 years ago. Uh, that is due to a number of factors. There was a, a large bleaching event in 1998 associated with the previous El Nino. Because we've had 15 years, most of the corals have, have come back. So about 10% of the loss of the barrier reef extent is due to bleaching. Uh, there are obviously a number of other problems that coral reefs have in Australia. We have a terrible thing called the crown of thorn starfish, which has literally been chewing it up. We also have a problem that the Barrier Reef is just off the Queensland coast where uh, there's a lot of agriculture, particularly sugarcane, and a lot of the fertilisers run off, off the land and, and into the ocean and they also have a, a terrible effect by uh, fertilising predators. We're also having more intense cyclones and cyclones and the commotion on the surface of the water can physically destroy reefs as well. So reefs are under the hammer from a, a number of sources, but this event of monumental destruction is, is directly a climate change related one. And what happens to a reef once the actual coral animals are gone? Well, we've 
we've got we've got three possibilities. If if the roof is only partially bleached, that is, there are some algae remaining in in the coral, then those corals will recover, uh, and that happens. If uh, all the algae is recover is is expelled from a coral. Uh, two things can happen with enough time. New lava can come and settle on it and rebuild it, but the coral structure can also uh, become diseased and it just starts to break up and in the end you get what I would in a very unscientific way call a green slime that just uh, builds over the coral and um, over a period of years to decades the, the limestone structure itself will just break down and look you know like the remnants of a, um, a collapsed building uh, scattered across the, the floor of the ocean. I've heard it described as rubble. Rubble indeed. Well so far as you know this year 2016 has broken global heat records not by a little bit but by a lot and how close are we to the upper limits where coral can survive around Australia? Well we've now had at the one degree of global average warming and extraordinary event where the sea surface temperatures were a degree um, hotter than normal. Um, the last event, as I said, was the, the, the largest, biggest bleaching between 1998 and 2002, so we've had 10 years. The corals recovered. Um, if we stayed at this one degree of global warming, I mean, it may be five years before another hot water event, it may be 15. I mean, the, the coral might struggle on to some extent um, at one degree of warming. But if we get another half a degree of warming, and there was, this, uh, there was a, a very important peer-reviewed piece of research done, which said that if you got the global average temperatures of one and a half degrees... And that's what we're looking at in you know, perhaps the next 20 years, another half degree of warming. Then their estimate was that corals reefs would be reduced to less than 10% of their present area. That, that is, they, they, would, they would be remnant systems. They wouldn't be uh, something that we would call um, part of uh, a great barrier reef. It would be a tiny barrier reef. So another half degree of warming, which is sort of in the system now and they'll be gone if we stayed at the current temperature they'd struggle on better and not so well. Let's get to the human role. Since Australia counts on billions of dollars in tourist revenue and other kinds of revenue, as you talked about from this famous reef system, I assume the government is focused on saving them, are they? The barrier reef tourist operators are in a difficult position. As I, as I, as I mentioned before, there's about 80,000 people, 8 to $10 billion a year of economic activity generated off the reef. They, the tourist operators don't want to scare away the visitors, so they're saying that there are parts of the reef which you can still visit, which is true. They must also know that their long-term business plan is that they won't have a business. So they're caught in a contradiction. Uh, the Australian government has played a terrible role. We have an environment minister who keeps on saying he wants to save the reef and then gives planning permission, environmental permission for huge new coal mines to be opened. So uh, objectively, the Australian government is, is aiding and, and, and abetting the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef. Well, we're kind of like that in Canada. We talk about the environment and then we promote the tar sands. We've just had a big fire near the tar sands and the Canadian Prime Minister came out and said, well, we'll rebuild right away. I could go on and on, but I won't. I know, no, and I'm sure people who draw connection between, as we have in Australia, between extraordinary out-of-season or extreme bushfires and climate change and uh, they want to shoot the messenger for suggesting what is, what is obviously and scientifically uh, able to be demonstrated. Yes, I put out a little YouTube about it and uh, got some 
terrible comments, but that's just part of the game. Now, I have to think, though, that when I hear Australian politicians, both federal and state, promising to expand coal mining, coal ports, more coal exports, they must somehow think the Great Barrier Reef is expendable, a kind of collateral damage. What do you think is going on in their minds? Look, that's a good question. I think that in Australia, which is uh, the two important things about Australia, we have the highest greenhouse emissions per capita of any uh, developed country in the world. So uh, we are really profligate. We have really large fossil fuel export capacity, which is trying to be built. Unfortunately, the uh, collapsing coal demand and, and coal prices has stopped, uh, at least the time being, a whole lot of new coal mines being uh, built, particularly inland from the Barrier Reef. But these are people who have seen uh, fossil fuels as, as, as a cargo cult and cannot understand that the continued operation of the fossil fuel industry and having a planet that livable are, are simply contradictory propositions. And, and, uh, and it has to be said that in my experience, the experience of others, most of these politicians and their advisors are very poorly informed on the science. Maybe that's deliberate, but in a basic scientific, emotional, existential way, they simply don't get it. But I know that there are millions of Australians who are deeply concerned about the Great Barrier Reef as it fights for its life. Who are the voices in the groups struggling to save the Great Reef? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question about whether, whether and how the Great Barrier Reef could be saved now. I mean, the simple proposition is that at one degree of global warming, the reef's in severe trouble. With more warming, it's certainly going to be in a death spiral. So to say something like the Barrier Reef actually means having a conversation and, and trying to think about whether we can stop physical global warming getting any worse than it is now because if it is, the reef will be gone. If we can hold global warming at one degree and knock it down a bit by large amounts of carbon drawdown and so on, then maybe it's got a hope. That's a very difficult conversation, I think, for a lot of climate groups and activists to have. Certainly, over the last three or four years in Australia, a lot of work has been done to draw the connections between the proposals for new coal mines on the Queensland coast near the Barrier Reef and the future of the reef. But in fact, the reef is being killed not by future coal mines, but by the coal mines and, and the oil that's been extracted over the last 20 or 30 years. So uh, lots of campaigning um, and honestly, uh, a lot of deep, heartfelt concern and pain about what people have seen. I'm feeling it myself. Have you seen some uh, some action in the international arena about pressuring Australia or trying to help Australia to save this reef? Well, yes, some of my, my friends in North America have pointed out to me that uh, there are, are climate campaigning organisations uh, in the United States and Canada who have actually uh, been directing their members to uh, get in, into contact with their politicians and also Australian uh, politicians in Australia. So I think there's been quite a bit of uh, solidarity uh, in terms of this issue, as indeed there needs to be. And if we lose this battle, and, and we may, how fast might it go dark and dead? Well, I, I think it's, it's a death spiral. I mean, the bleaching wasn't even. It was worse on the north than the south. Uh, a lot of the southern areas are not in such bad shape, so they will battle on. Maybe uh, the next surge of hot water will hit a different part of the reef, so the, there won't be a moment when the lights will go out. 
but just the the extent, the footprint of the reef, its connectedness will, will suffer. So it will be um, death by a thousand small warmings, I'm afraid. Certainly in 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 coral scientists really honestly say they've said if you want a safe reef bleaching started at, at, at around 320 to 340 parts per million of carbon dioxide I mean that was 30, 40 years in the past we're now at 400 parts per million when they, we got to 387 parts per million almost 10 years ago they said we're now past the point where the reef can, can survive so that's some context that it is now our, our past emissions and sins which are, are dreadfully catching up with us Right, and there's about a 30-year delay, uh, I've heard, That's right. from what we already burned is still to come. That's right. I mean, we, we saw another example of that a couple of years ago when that really important research came out on some of the West Antarctic glaciers, and they said, we can now see that some of these glaciers have passed their tipping points for the total loss of the glacier, of, of increasing uh, glaciation. And that will lead to one or two metres off the immediate glaciers, but this will trigger glaciation of uh, much more of West Antarctic, which is three to five metres of sea level rise. And we asked some of the scientists who'd be involved in that work, so when do you think the tipping point was and, and, and at what level of carbon dioxide do you think this event happened? And they said, look, you've got to go back to the 1970s. You'd have to go back to 1970s levels of, of carbon dioxide probably to stop those West Antarctic uh, ice sheets tipping over. So uh, as with the Barrier Reef and so many other things, we don't see these tipping points coming because by their nature, in, in a way, we can't. But when they do occur, what we're seeing is things that were put in train decades before, and that's the whole story of, of global warming and, and its delayed consequences. We almost see it in the rearview mirror. Yes, unfortunately, uh, unless we can turn the, the car or the truck or the bus or the tram around very quickly. So you published Climate Code Red in 2008. Are you considering a new edition of the book, another book, or is that your blog? That's my, my blog now. I think things are changing so quickly that when we wrote that book, somebody said we, we were pretty adventurous. Um, some people would have called us alarmist uh, back then. Uh, but in fact, that book has stood the test of time better than most in that most of the things it talked about. Uh, we talked in that, that, that book back in 2007 and 8 of the West Antarctic ice sheet probably having uh, passed its tipping point when very few other people did. So uh, it's still relevant in a way. But I think the pace of change is, is now so great that um, you're always playing catch-up as indeed some of the climate science is. I mean, the noticeable thing about the last year and the El Nino and, and the extraordinary events that have happened in Alberta in the, in the Great Barrier Reef, the uh, extraordinary droughts in Asia, in the water shortages in India, the, the food problems in southern Africa, is that the observations, what's actually happening on the ground, often seem in advance of what we thought or projected would happen. And that's been the story of global warming over the last 20 years. I remember when we did our book and there'd been that incredible ice mass loss, sea ice mass loss in the northern summer of 2007 in the Arctic and um, one of the, the, the climate scientists said, but this is happening 100 years ahead of schedule. In fact, the laws of physics don't wait for, for our schedules. They, they proceed as they must. And uh, this is one of the problems that the risks associated with climate change and what will happen, I think, are often been underestimated in, in the public conversation unless you really take a lot of time and effort, as, as you have in your program, and we've talked about this before, to, to really get to grips 
with with all the risks and all the possibilities. And public uh, policymakers have tended to veer to the other side of the road and, and in a way try to downplay the risk, I think. From Melbourne, Australia, we've been talking with David Spratt. He's the author, blogger and activist and chronicler of the age of climate change, I think. David, thank you for all your work for the climate and for talking with us today. It's a great pleasure, Alex. Thank you so much. And indeed, that was David Spratt, and Vivian has had David Spratt on on this humble show uh, before. For those of you who listen regularly, you might might remember his name. Uh, yeah, that was uh, quite a sobering couple of pieces there, and it has been very sobering that the election has come and gone with uh, very little impetus or catalyst from the dying of the the Great um, Barrier Reef. That didn't seem to make much of a mention at all in the run-up to the election, either by the media or the politicians. So having just listened to that sobering analysis and being as well-informed a listener as you are, we know because you listen to our show, amongst others, every week, perhaps you'll be impelled to join a climate action group to get out there and to lend your weight to the climate change wheel because certainly we're not going to be led by our, our leaders on these issues. So I, I've dragged up tonight just um, Environment Victoria has quite a good listing of possible environmental or climate action groups to join. Uh, it's not enough to wait for somebody else to do it. We all need to play our part. And there's a range of locally based groups linked on Environment Victoria's website, just to name a few. There is, of course, our humble organisation, BZE, but there's Chelsea has a, a climate action group, Darabin, uh, Geelong, Maroondah, Mooney Va- Valley, Mount Alexander, Murundindi. Uh, there's some more general uh, climate action groups like Families for a Safe Climate or Future Makers. There's many, many action groups that you could join and I would urge you, if not beg you, to uh, join at least one. The other, the other uh, cause I would direct you to tonight uh, with a few minutes left to go would be the Great Forest National Park and you can find their, their cause under the website greatforestnationalpark.com.au. That's a very worthy venture and an endeavour to save habitat just outside of Melbourne along the, the eastern sort of reaches of Melbourne and uh, that area is also the home of the Leadbeater's possum, a gorgeous little possum which is endangered. Not that a species need be uh, gorgeous to be worthy of our of our help. But that's it for the show tonight. I uh, don't forget to listen to our Friday sister show on at eight thirty on a, on Fridays Friday mornings with Kay and Michael and associated cameos from others there. Thanks very much to our fabulous team: Roger, Teddy, Jody, Andy, Viv, and myself. Uh, the guests tonight were Ian Angus, uh, an author of Facing the Anthropocene, and David Spratt. And we, if you search for Climate Code Red, you'll find his, bog, his blog. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to all of you who donated. Thanks to all of you who listen, and we'll see you next week.